Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine, but I am simply here today to introduce you once again to Seb Stafford-Bloor, who is TIFO's content editor, and to Daniel Taylor, who is his guest today. Daniel Taylor is currently the chief football writer for The Guardian and The Observer. In 2015, he released I Believe in Miracles, a book about Brian Clough and Nottingham Forest, to accompany the film of the same name, and more recently, he was the ghostwriter for Kevin Keegan's new autobiography, My Life in Football, and that's mainly what Seb talks to him about today. So the conversation is about the book, it's about Kevin Keegan, it's about his place within the history of football, it's about how more modern fans will be more likely to remember Kevin as uh, the manager of Newcastle, for example, as opposed to possibly, you know, one of the best proponents of English football throughout history. But it's also uh, about the, in parts, about the process of ghostwriting a book, which I found very interesting as well. And Daniel talks about how he met Kevin and uh, how the process worked, which is fascinating. So thank you uh, to Daniel Taylor for being involved. It's a real pleasure to have him on the podcast. And thank you to Seb for organising it and presenting it and doing basically everything other than this bit here. One final thing before we get started. Alex and I will be back as of December with a weekly tactics podcast. Uh, So thanks for your patience there. And that's it for me for now. So uh, thank you for downloading. Hope you enjoy it and speak to you soon. Okay, so uh, first of all, did you did you have a um, did you have a prior relationship with Kevin um, before writing your biography? No, there was nothing that I mean I I, I covered a, when I was um, starting in Manchester. I suppose I, I covered a, some of his press conferences at Manchester City, but um, no relationship as such, and it, you know com- completely came out of the blue. Really, um, I was actually talking to the um, publishers about another idea, and then obviously they they, they were. You know, they were approached by by Kevin's sort of side, you know, to do his autobiography, and they needed they needed a ghostwriter. And Kevin's not really kept in touch with um, any journalist as such. And obviously, the journalists, you know, who, who covered his career, I mean, a lot of them have moved on or retired, etc. Anyway, so they needed somebody to do it. And obviously, they came to me, and it was a completely new project. I'll be honest, at the start, I also thought that he put. I also had this sort of idea that he would probably live somewhere in Northumberland or up in the northeast, and uh, you know, logistically, I thought it might be quite difficult. Be actually, but it actually, I mean, my stroke of good fortune, I suppose, was that it actually turned out he lived ten, ten minutes from me. So, um, oh, really? Was, yeah, so that was a really big help. Um, I, um, I, I was imagining him to live on a farm. I don't know why. I, I well, he, he did once. <laughs> yeah, that's he lived, yeah. No, he lived when he lived in uh, in Hampshire. He, he he once, uh, you know, he, he he kept horses and you know he'd go out and sort of looking at the horses at six in the morning and you know he he had incredible amount of land and um, you know he he does like all that side but no he doesn't live on a farm now he lives uh, um, he, he lives in South Manchester basically in in one of the sort of classic football areas you know there's a lot of footballers around where yeah. where he lives and um, and I, I'm in Manchester so it all worked out nicely. What's um. <laughs> What's that process like? So, you obviously you your your approach to, to to be the ghostwriter. What comes next after that? Um, well, it's strange. I mean, it's strange. I mean, basically, I had to just ring him up and sort of uh, introduce myself in a kind of you know first time I've spoken to him really <laughs> properly. And um, you know, we met for lunch, and um, 
I mean, I don't think he would ever say this, but I suppose he's probably sizing me up a little bit. And, um, you know, we just, you know, we obviously just talked about football, really. And um, I don't really think this was um, the be-all to end-all, but, uh, you know, I suppose if he maybe got the impression that I didn't have a clue what I was talking about, and um, yeah. then then perhaps he wouldn't have been so keen. Um, but we we got on straight away. And it's, it's very easy to get on with Kevin. You know, he's, he's incredibly, um, uh, you know, with his hospital with his time and um, uh, his wife, Jean, as well. And just, just I mean, it's been quite eye-opening with me, really. I've, I've never known anybody, you know, we've just done all the signing tour and, the way he is with the public is, it, it, I mean, that one sounds too corny, but it's quite inspiring, really. You know, he, he he will spend hours with people, even if it means that he's getting home at three in the morning. He will never ever disappoint anybody, you know. And it's, you know, I've been with, I've been with a lot of footballers. Who, you know, they sign, they they treat signing sessions as, as a pain in the neck. You know? yeah. yeah. And they don't, you know, they don't enjoy that sort of sign. Whereas Kevin will. You know, you sort of see him taking people's phones and doing recordings of himself or insisting that he wants to ring somebody's grandma or et cetera, et cetera. So, so it, the process of getting on with the guy wasn't hard at all. And we just basically talked about football and, um, um, I mean, we got on well and, and, you know, just took it from there, really. And after that, the process was really that I would um, I would drive over to where he lives and we'd... we'd um, we just basically, I mean, Gene would supply a kind of never-ending uh, supply of sort of coffee and toast and uh, sandwiches and all. You know, um, you know, she couldn't really do much more to make if we were welcome in the house, really. And and I mean, I was, t- I was told by Don McRae, who's done a lot, a lot of um, ghostwriting. Basically, he gave me some advice beforehand. My colleague at the Guardian, and basically, he said to me, you know. Just, after two, two, two and a half hours, perhaps the, you know the subject of the book, you know you can't you can't just basically drain them with 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 the interview process because no. they will get tired or they'll you know they'll, they'll start their concentration will start to wander anything and I, I, I sort of tried to bear that in, in mind. But with Kevin, he'd, he'd be sitting there for three or four hours, and then he sort of slap you know clap his hands together and basically suggest you go out for lunch and then. And then carry on in the afternoon, you know, and he'd be a bit disappointed also a couple of times where I'd say, well, I've actually got to go home or, you know, because he's just so sort of enthusiastic, basically. And, um, you know, the quote, and he used to always, he used to always talk about Bill Shankly and basically how Bill Shankly said, you know, if, you're, if your job is a street cleaner, make sure you've got the cleanest street in you, yeah. you know, there is. And that really is Kevin, basically. You know, he, he wanted to devote so much time to it. And, um, you know, for, I mean, for a journalist, and especially in today's, in today's world where everything's so sort of stage managed and press conferences tend to be quite dreary and going down the next round to hear a load of footballers sort of talking. <laughs> you know, it's, it's all media, you know, it's all media trained. If they stop, know. if they stop at all. So. Yeah, well, well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you, I mean, you learn more from those, you can, you know, you learn more about football and you get the, you know, a hundred times greater insight for one of those sessions, after sitting with someone that's got Kevin that, that, that has you know, someone with Kevin's sort of knowledge and experience of football, than you would do in several years of, of press conferences and and um, you know interviews with an a small army of press officers sitting around, so you can't ask anything exciting, and the players, you know, they've been told in advance what to say to you, and you know it's all quite. Um, 
you know, I don't like the way the kind of industry's gone that way, if you know what I mean. So, yeah. so to actually get time with, you know, someone that, with Kevin's achievements, you know, is the only Englishman to win the Ballon d'Or twice, you know, yeah. European Cup, we won everything pretty much there was, there was to win at Liverpool. He was then, you know, the first English player to go abroad and make a success of it. Um, you know, it was, it was when he was at Hamburg that he won his two European Football of the Year awards. Um, reach another European Cup final, and then, and then obviously as a manager, you know he, he um, didn't actually, um, you know, didn't actually win any major trophies. Um, but when you look at, uh, you know, where, where he left Newcastle compared to where he found them, and the same with Manchester City, and also the same with Fulham, you know, it's really only the England um, situation where, you know, things went badly for him. And unfortunately, you know, England being England, you know, people kind of tend to tend to remember that rather more so than say, you know, the fact that when he was at Man City they got promoted to sort of actually scoring more goals than they did with Newcastle and, you know, until again that that sort of side of things tends to be forgotten because everything's been so overtaken at Manchester City now with the whole Abu Dhabi, you know, the whole Sheikh Mansour and everything. But you know, I know Manchester City fans of that generation, you know, who became in key in the years until everything changed with the with the takeover, I think the Kevin Keegan years were amazing years at Manchester City. Um, obviously, Newcastle was a sort of a legendary time, and um, and he, and um, you know he, it was he was involved at the start of the process that took Fulham, you know, through the leagues, you know, um, with our fired. So, you know, so great success also as a manager. Just obviously the England situation went badly, and then when he went back to Newcastle the second time, that was a very sort of sour experience. I um I'm I'm too young to have ever covered um his management career, but when I read the book, I remember thinking I, I've read your your other books. I've read Even the Forest and the One and and I believe in Miracles. It, it's a it's it's a very different tone to it. Which obviously I, I guess at the point of an autobiography, it's meant to sound like Kevin Keegan um, speaking, and we've all heard you know him in interviews to, to have enough of a, a perspective on, on what that might be like in in sort of a, in, in the personal sense. Is that a challenge as an author, uh, as as a ghostwriter? Is it quite is it quite difficult to kind of mimic that style? Um, well, well, I, I think that's a very good question, and it's something I, I, I have to answer carefully because I don't want to say anything that would sound disrespectful or anything. But no, if no, you if you look at a lot of autobiographies. I can so for example, Hugh McIlvenny did Alex Ferguson's first one. Yeah. If you if you read or the main one, the, the one that everyone refers to, if you if you read that autobiography, it it it, it is written beautifully. Yeah. It is written it's Hugh McIlvenny, and there's kind of you know there's I mean Fergie had a quite a colourful language, but but there were there were times where he talks about, for example, sort of finding. Ryan Giggs and sort of watching this, you know, it's like watching a cocker spaniel chasing a, you know, a screwed up, you know, bouncing. I can't remember the exact words, but but I just think, you know, that that is Hugh McIlvenny's um, touch, and and Jim Lawton, who who died recently, Jim Lawton was one of my favourite writers. He wrote Bobby Charlton's book, and I, again, I'm reading that, and I'm and I can see That's Jim, I can see Jim, well. I can see Jim, yeah. yeah, I can see Jim's touches all over it. Now. You need that to a certain respect, but but one of the first conversations I had with Kevin was that he he uh, he he just read someone's autobiography and uh, some a prayer that he once had, and he basically said, look, I I I, I didn't particularly enjoy it. This is him talking, not me, because 
basically yeah. I knew that wasn't the player's voice, it was the it was the writer's voice. And so he made the point of, you know, I want it to sound like me. I don't want, you know, he didn't want, you know, me to be kind of, you know, incredibly floral and, you know, this is, but Kevin, you know, Kevin was brought up in a, in his words, in a slum in Doncaster and he's a, he's a norm, very normal guy. I don't think he wanted me to kind of, um, to put, you know, all kind of an elaborate sort of flowery broadsheet spin on it. <laughs> to the point where I, you know, it, um, he was talking, there was one passage where I kind of talked about it and I used the word eviscerated and yeah. kind of, you know, in the end, you know, when, when we kind of came to the kind of meeting of, you know, I'd sent Kevin the, the book and we had the meeting where basically he was to go through it and say the bits that, he, he, that I needed to change or, and that's obviously the bit I think is the ghostwriter you dread the most and fortunately it, it, it all went very, um, very kind of peacefully, I suppose, but, um, but that was one of the, but, you know, because he basically he was just like, look, I've, I, eviscerated is not a word I would use. I would not, mm. you know, I would not, and, and he's right, you know, it was my, it was my mistake as the ghostwriter to, to put a word in that, it was just me being a bit of a, me trying to be too clever for my own good, to be honest. And so, so yes, but however, you will read a lot of other people's books where you, I can certainly see that it's not perhaps the, um, the subject's voice so much it's, it's a lot more the ghostwriter's voice whereas I wanted to be a little bit more um, yeah I wanted to basically do what, the, what the, the guy's wishes were which was basically to make it sound like him rather than me you know which I think is probably quite important um, yeah I think it's a good point because I I, um, I think most people would agree that, that um, one of the greatest biographies is Paul Lake um, and I don't know if, if, if he had a, a ghostwriter for that but it, it, it's kind of obviously the story is great but it has this slightly unrefined, real quality to it. I mean, that's, that's yeah, it's certainly one of my favourite yeah. um, autobiographies. I, I mean, the, the difference with that one is um, there was a ghostwriter, but it, and it was his wife Joanne. And basically, um, I would I would um, say she's probably my favourite ghostwriter um, in terms of. Um, I mean, she obviously got brilliant stuff out of her husband, and I of think course, yeah. know, there's an advantage, I suppose, in that. He's more likely to talk, um, you know, in great, as he does do in the book, he talks incredibly closely and some incredible personal stuff about, about, um, you know, the injury and how that affected him mentally and, um, you know, the sort of detail that, that maybe, you know, I, I or another ghostwriter wouldn't get basically, but I think she, and she's done other, you know, she, Joanne's done other, she did Howard Webb's and I think um, maybe one or two others and, you know, she, she she is extremely good at yeah. um, at, at, at being the um, being the voice of the subject, basically. Um, now, I suppose she, I'm sure if she spoke to her, I'd imagine that it being her husband probably, had, you know, the pros and cons of it. But certainly, um, I think that she, you know, she did a great job in terms of getting stuff that you know an ordinary ghostwriter wouldn't be able to get out of out of someone um, but it's still you know still a, another talent in itself to kind of to you know to be able to put put it on a page and as brilliantly as she did do you know it was certainly one of the one of the books that i really enjoyed oh absolutely I mean, if anyone listening hasn't read that definitely um Definitely find time to do so because it, 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 it's so frank and uh, in parts it's actually very moving. Um, yeah, well, I mean, he talks. I mean, he, uh, there's a passage in there, you know, talking about the mental health um, yeah. aspect of it. That um, and basically, basically, it all kind of comes back to the fact that you know he, he was he was obviously 
talked about as being one of the one of the great prospects in English football, basically. And then obviously the knee injury, you can't just just obviously sort of wipe all that out really. So mm-hmm. yeah, he took. Uh, he, I mean, I think it, he also when that book came out, it was also at a time where it wasn't quite so easy maybe for for men to talk. You know, I think it's perhaps a little bit the barriers have come down a bit in the in the years since basically so so when he talked so closely and frankly about about how he'd suffered you know and i think there was one point where he said he wasn't talking about jumping but you know he was looking over a motorway bridge and you know it's kind of incredibly um yeah. depressed about what happened there. I think that, that, that at the time the book came out that it, it was quite rare almost to hear anybody who'd be brave enough to sort of talk that openly Whereas now I think the culture has changed a little bit where people are a bit more um, open about things like that and they realise that, you know, the audience isn't quite so, um, um, well, football isn't isn't perhaps as tough, not to to put it, the the culture around football isn't, isn't quite so impenetrable anymore. Yeah, I mean, I, I think also it's kind of, um, We'll get back to Kevin, but I think like, there's an awful lot of credit for that because I, I think it's kind of, um, I think to write that book is a brave thing in the first place, but also, you know, to expose that much of himself. Um, yeah, that's what I mean, especially in, in those, doing it. yeah, um, especially in those, um, as I say, I mean, it's not, it's not too long ago that book came out, but in, but as I say, I think even in, the, in, in those years, football has changed a bit and, um, yeah, you know, he talked about things very kind of openly and, um, and that can't have been, been easy. But then also, I don't see the point of, of anyone doing a book. And I know, um, I, I think, um, I remember reading a couple of people sort of talking, I think um, the guy who did uh, Dwight York's book basically talks about, you know, it's quite frustrating, you know, if you do a, um, if you're doing a book with someone, they, they have to throw themselves into that project. And thankfully for me, Kevin Keegan did that, and he, and he could, and he would be very open and, um, you know, admit his own mistakes and talk about you know things that ordinarily he might not really particularly want to remember. Almost, you know, you need you need someone to I think to, to bring out a good book. You need someone who who is willing to really, you know go into everything really closely. You know, I also think it helps if you um, if the subject of the book is is almost is not working in football anymore because. Um, you know, so many books of people, you know, if they're still at a football club, I don't quite see how they can be entirely honest um, mm-hmm. because, you know, they, they can't, I don't mean, you know, um, being unduly sort of turning on players or, or teammates, etc., etc., but, but it's a lot easier to talk about the real story if, uh, you know, if that involves criticism of someone or or, or Examples that maybe you know wouldn't go brilliant down brilliantly if you turned up in the dressing room the next day and you've got to face those players and everything. So, so I always think it's it's certainly easy. You know, I didn't have that problem with with Kevin obviously to um, you know to have a subject that's just not in the in the sport anymore or certainly not a player anymore anyway. Um, we'll get to sort of I mean his his kind of his last act in the game a little bit, but I I want to say he comes across as, as being very humble in the book. I mean that, that kind of humility where. You're reading. He doesn't. Um, he doesn't seem like someone who dwells on his own success. There aren't sort of three chapters on winning a European Cup, and the guy yeah. when you know well, the guy when back to back Ballon d'Ors, and it's still a kind of it's almost yeah. Like, uh, well, I, I have a difficulty. Um, I thought that was quality of his defence. I mean, if I hadn't brought up the Ballon d'Or, I, don't, I think there might have been a substantial hold in the book because I know he wouldn't have done. And he's it's amazing. Done, and and also his gold, golden boot. You know, he just. Um, yeah. And I mean, I held his arm doors. 
and uh, which was quite a nice feeling for me being just a, you know, and, and it's quite something because, I mean, basically one of, one of them's got a rattle and they're, you know, they're incredibly light and the sort of thing, yeah, literally the sort of thing, you, if you were playing in a, in a pub dance competition, you would win. You know, you can see the glue. That's what it is now as well. well you, can see the, you can see the glue when the plaque <laughs> peeling off behind the plaque on the on the bottom. So, uh, but I mean, uh, again, this goes back to what I said. You know, Kevin sort of laughs about that, and um, uh, and uh, yeah, he just doesn't bring it up. And when I basically mentioned the fact, you know, he he won the golden boots. He's you know, Kevin's response is, "Well, I was a striker. You know, I was." one of the best strikers in the country and there's, if you think about the competition there's only going to be six or seven strikers who could possibly win that so is is that such a great honour and I'm, I'm sitting there thinking well it is quite a great honour yeah, yeah. But, uh, but in his mind I think the team things mattered more to him I think he took more pleasure out of the fact that he um, that he went abroad and showed that English footballers can be a success in another country and he took more pleasure out of the fact you know, of winning the European Cup and winning 60-odd England caps and capsing in England 30-odd times. But the individual things, you know, the two Ballon d'Ors, he really doesn't mention, you know, and um, he, he's he got an OBE, but, but you, you know, he won't... You, you, you know, he doesn't... Put it this way, he doesn't sign his name, Kevin Keegan, OBE. You know, he's... And I almost think he feels slightly embarrassed about that. Like, I'm not sure he's... He's, um, he's a big one for the kind of the awards process and... And all that sort of style. So, um, so yeah, I think, and it goes back to what I said earlier, just in terms of you know just being an ordinary guy. He's not lost sight of that fact, despite the fact he's, he's had years upon years of being you know the superstar um, and being treated accordingly. You know, kind of he was the best played best played football in England and in Germany for many years. Um, yeah, but he's retained that. Um, that's how he tells a story about when he was a kid at Doncaster. He, he waited all afternoon to try and meet his hero. That's one of his one of his playing heroes. That's how Doncaster. That's a very famous year, yeah. yeah. And um, basically, this guy finally eventually came out, and the car park was empty, and he asked for an autograph. And this guy basically said, oh, "I'm too busy today," and sort of ambled to his car and just you know completely blanked him. And in Kevin's words, you know, sort of sending him heartbroken, and basically that. He says, always sort of um, is in his mind. You know, he he, he just he, you know, he he will he will devote as much time as as there is basically to to meeting the public and um, just you know treating treating people with respect and giving them time and just you know it's quite you know it's a very endearing side to him. Yeah, something struck me while 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 reading it is that um talking about his, his humility and, and his approach to fans, he doesn't um. I mean, he, he doesn't seem to carry himself yeah, as a superstar. And yet, if you, if you look at if you look down the list of, of players who won uh, the Ballon d'Or before and after him, I mean, that's a group that includes Coyce, Beckenbauer, Rummenigge. I think Alan Simonson is in there as well somewhere. Um, I like blocking. And you think, uh, what, what do you think his place as a player is? Because it's almost as if in this country, people obviously there's a recency bias towards his time as a manager with Newcastle that dominates, you know, stuff for the younger generation. But this is a he's arguably the country's most successful player, at least abroad at his time. Yeah, it's um, really weird. It's a really yeah. weird one. The thing, the thing is as well, he he he. I actually think he should have won the, the Ballon d'Or three times. Um, he um, he won it two years in a row, but the other time he was second. Um, 70, to, to Alan, six, seven, yeah, seven. to Alan, Alan Simonson, and basically yeah. 
he didn't realise this until we started digging around, but basically um, Kevin Keegan actually won more of the vote to win it than any other player, including the guy who actually did win it. Yeah. But he didn't. He didn't win it because the other guy got more second place votes and kind of had a, had a kind of totting up procedure um, where you get points for finishing first, second, third, and the points overall put Keegan second, even though he'd actually had more votes to win it as the outright winner. So you know, I mean, don't get me wrong. There's you can see it from both points of view, and but but essentially, he, more people voted for him to win that award. Than anybody else. So, it's, so if it was just based purely on first place votes, it would have been him three years running. Which is incredible. Um, yeah, but it's a strange one because people of a certain generation, I think, talk about Keegan being a great player. But other, but people of another generation just remember him as mostly the Newcastle manager, I think, and he's remembered mostly for that. Which I understand, but it is it is strange when you look at the list of Ballon d'Or winners. You look at. Um, yeah, the fact that he was the first to go abroad. You know, he went abroad to Germany, came back with two European Football of the Year awards, a Bundesliga title with a club that hadn't won it for you know nearly twenty years, and then he took and then he led them to the European Cup final the next season. So, um, so yeah, he, he couldn't really have done much more. I mean, but in, in his in his own words, though, he would admit. I mean, there's always that famous quote, you know, that he wasn't fit to to lace George Best. Um, boots, or and then the follow-up quote about, or, or even his drinks. But and and Kevin Keegan will, will will basically say, yeah, that's true. You know, he was he was in his words the, the Mongol who made it to Crufts. You know, he 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 couldn't um, you know he, he he couldn't dribble like Maradona, and he you know he he didn't um, you know he wasn't as fast as he was fast, but he wasn't as fast as say Trevor Francis. Um, you know he. Um, but he, he could do everything, and he worked so kind of hard at everything that he, that he maximised his ability and everything. I mean, you just sort of look at the size of him. You know, he's five foot five, five foot six, but but he was absolutely brilliant in the air. You know, um, so so yeah. But it's it's strange because there is a bit of me that wants to wants to say why why isn't he remembered as one of yeah, the kind of absolutely. genuine kind of category A greats um, when you look at what he's done. And uh, but it's not an argument that he will take up. Um, you know, he will actually go the other way and say, you know, I, you know, I'm in a list. It gives me great pride, obviously, but I'm in a list with players that are head and shoulders above me. Whereas, you know, there's a bit of modesty in that. But I think there's probably a bit, of, a bit of truth in terms of natural ability. I mean, you know, we, we, we most of us know Keegan's backstory now. You know, it took, it, you know, he, it, it took an awful lot for him even to get. To get um, Scunthorpe United interested in, never mind anybody else. And then, well, there wasn't until Liverpool came along and everything suddenly took off. It wasn't like there was a queue of doors. Sorry, a queue of major clubs trying to sort of sign him. So, so, um, so maybe he's going back to those years and the fact that it was a struggle for him. You know, it wasn't like he was the story. The story all the way through from being 13, 14 was that he was the superstar player. He kind of you know, had to go on that long, that long climb to get to that point. I think there's um, I remember we were talking about when he 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 runs um, he he wants to run a 50 mile cross country. Yeah. Um, and when I read that, I thought that's got to be a typo. That's got to be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I think it was 15 at the time, wasn't it, or something? It's incredible. It's sort of the you know, if there was a little bit more, um, little less humility, you think, oh, this guy. 
Okay, here's the advice of it again. It's an incredible example. Yeah. How to do it well, also, I don't know if, I mean, the first time he tried it, it was basically between Manchester and Sheffield. Um, I don't know if you know Woodhead Pass, but I mean, it's literally... I don't, but I know the distance between the two. Yeah. Well, yeah, well, Woodhead Pass is literally, um, uh, I mean, just hills up and down all the way. It's just, you know, beautiful, beautiful part of countryside, but... Um, it's not the sort of place, you know, I drive that way, you don't see anyone jogging it, ever. Um, you you rarely see anyone anyone trying to cycle it. Um, so that was, the, that, that was the route they took, first of all. Um, to be fair, he, he didn't actually finish it that time, but he got further than anybody else. Um, and then basically the next time they did it was from Nottingham to Doncaster. And, you know, so you just took, I think doing, you know, that was a 50-mile run, so essentially, it's, well, it's just just under two marathons back to back. Yeah. And at the age of fifteen, and you know, just I think he, he said doing that, you know, I mean, to me, it's utter lunacy basically. But doing that, you know, kind of gave him that that stamina and extra fitness that he said he never lost it basically after that. And he was all, you know, wherever he went, which is a huge advantage, you know, if you're the fit, if you know that you're you, you're if you fancy yourself as being fitter than your opponents, you know, that's a, that's a massive advantage for a footballer. Um, and basically, he he just had that for the rest of his career, really. Um, so yeah, you know, I mean, uh, you know, cause I'd get tired driving 50 miles. Never mind, like, even thinking about <laughs> trying to run 50 miles. So, um, the the book ends, and it, it, it's quite somber actually, because I, I I don't know if this is correct, but I I remember reading, and I obviously uh, more modern audiences will will naturally zero in on on his return to Newcastle, by which time obviously Mark actually owns the club. Um, he cuts a like a very lost figure in those years because it sort of he comes to club and he, he sort of he, he's fired up by the thought of maybe repeating what he did before but having greater funds with which to do it and he he just you know he sounds so excited by the prospect and then obviously what follows is the subject is you know a court case and um, you know a constructive dismissal claim is he sort of is he is is that part of his career kind of in a, in a, in a way that it represent how much football changed between you know, his career lasted for so long, but it, football's evolution towards what it maybe is now, and the kind of it's not about your sort of Kevin Keegan, let's see what we can do, let's play some football kind of um, ambition and more of a, an enterprise, I guess is is, is how I describe it. Well, I think he he certainly feels it's changed um, mm-hmm. to the point where the the, the Newcastle experience. The second time round, his manager sort of turned him against wanting to work in football again, basically because it was such a, a, a such a, an eye opener into you know the, the way of modern football. That, um, now, not every club is run like Mike Ashley's Newcastle, and no. obviously, if you if you've read the book, you know you'll know. I mean, Keegan uses the word tragic comedy, which is, I think is exactly right. Really, it's um, it, it is tragic, but there are kind of times where keep himself going, he would try to laugh about it, which I don't imagine was very easy for a lot of the time. But I'm actually to be honest, I'm actually surprised he lasted so long because it was only within a couple of weeks of getting there that he realised that it was gonna be nothing like he imagined, which is that I mean basically if you think that on his first time as a manager he took over a club that was in the relegation places of what was what would now be called the championship, um in real danger of dropping down into the um into the third division, and he was told basically if that did happen, that Newcastle could go out of business. Um, and so basically, he took that. That was the team that he obviously then took up, to, you know, saved from relegation by the skin of the teeth, really. 
then they won the championship the next, the next season. And then obviously after that, you know, it's the kind of what I suppose is now quite a legendary time now. You know, taking a Man United and you know all, all that the entertainment and everything that came with it. But so to go back to Newcastle to take over the team that Sam Allardyce had had left, but left with good players. You know, there were some good players there. So there was, I think there were twelve when Allardyce left. You know, to take to take over that side is a is a hell of a lot better than taking over a side that's you know on the verge of dropping into the third division. So I thought I think that he thought that you know with his own expertise and with Mike Ashley's backing because Mike Ashley did did give him the distinct feeling that would be backing there. He, uh, Mike Ashley did say to him that he wasn't Roman, Roman Abramovich, which is fair enough, but. Equally, you know, what happened there was just almost you know, bizarre, basically, in terms of some of the uh, incidents that happened with, you know, Modric, Jonathan Woodgate, Sammy Hippier, Charlie Schweinsteiger as incredible anecdotes. Just, you know, so many kind of anecdotal stories of of what a sham it was behind the scenes there, basically. And, you know, people kind of gang up on him, really. You know, if you, if you look at what the evidence that came out in, in the um, the court case, where they just, just one story, you know, they they had a... Kevin Key wanted Sammy Hippier to be the sort of new leader at the back. You know, great player for Liverpool. Um, they basically had a conference call at nine o'clock. Um, you know, agreed to put in a bit um, of two million. And then basically... Once Keegan rung off, the uh, the directors there had a second conference call without telling him, and they agreed to actually make it one million and not tell not tell the manager. And basically, you know, his his opinion is that they never wanted the player because they would have known that one million would just be laughed out, you know, and there's no chances mm-hmm. of getting that player. And basically, um, so you know, they they wanted to sign the players they wanted, and it ended up with a court case that was you know highly embarrassing for them really, but. Also, sort of just made bare the you know modern football at its worst. So yes, I do think it's changed, but equally you can't really judge every football club by those standards because I think Newcastle, you know, at the moment certainly of of the big clubs are the one that are, are, are run the, the worst. It's strangely, I mean, the um, the only anecdote from that period, which I mean, I don't say laugh, it sounds a bit callous, but the you know when when Tony Jimenez is talking about. Um, with collections in, in South America. Yeah, yeah. And Kevin's worrying about, you know, well, okay, that, that's great, but, you know, how'd you get them in the country and how'd you get them a work permit? And, uh, you know, it just turns around and says, oh, we'll, we'll fight them in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, well, all, I think all you have that, to have a little bit of gallows humour with Yeah, no, no, but I think all of that was within the first few weeks, you see. So It's incredible. So, yeah, um, so basically within the first few weeks, he's realised that the guy who who has been appointed as the kind of, um, you know, the expert, the transfer director to bring in all these players, doesn't, doesn't in Kevin's mind, appear to understand that to bring these players in, you actually need a work permit. So obviously Kevin's saying, well, how are you going to get them in? And I think Tony Jimenez, he says, looked at him like it was the most stupid question he'd ever answered. You know, so, so it's the most stupid question he'd ever faced. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's so many of those stories, and, and they, they all happen very, very quickly, really. So I think... Um, in a sense, I'm almost surprised he lasted as long as he did because, um, he, you know, he, 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 it just became very, very quickly obvious that, um, that unless unless something changed there, and he got no support from Mike Ashley, um, that um, you know it was going to end badly. Um, 
and obviously it just got worse and worse and worse. And then, I, and then when when they started signing players behind his back without telling him and without him, without um, giving him the opportunity to actually watch these players in the flesh, and basically it turned out that it was it was a favour for agents, um, yeah. which is a strange favour when you think of the money involved. You know, one of the agents was paid. Um, the players were. The, play, the two players in question were, you know, paid millions. Newcastle. This is all the time that Newcastle are basically telling the fans that, you know, the season tickets going to have to go up if they want, um, you know, if they if they want a team that that the Newcastle public wants, and yet at the same time they're signing players that they they know are never going to play for the club, and it's just, you know, who, who does favours for agents like that really? And um, you know, I do think Kevin is justified when he says. Even though no rules were broken, it's something the FA really should have looked at, you know, because it stinks. Yeah, it's part of that where he's kind of, I think he's talking to Dennis Wise and, and Wise is found some player and then he's, Kevin's been directed to YouTube to look at like a, you know, like a, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a of this guy's greatest moments. It's just, it's kind of, it's very sad. I mean, it's kind of, I, yeah, I mean, I, 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 it is a sound note, but I, I, I don't want to detract from it. It's what's a really, um, it's a, a very self-selling read, um, because it's just a, it's kind of a, a, a nice guy finishing first situation for much of his career. That's certainly how it comes across. Um, yeah, well, I think, um, I mean, even though, don't get me wrong, that experience was bad enough for him to, to think that I don't really want to go back into football if that's the way football's become. Um, He's not sitting at home, sort of, um, you know, with a voodoo doll of Mike Ashley and <laughs> punishing himself. And we, we went up to Newcastle. Married Derek, maybe, maybe Derek Lambias. Well, yeah, he didn't, yeah, he didn't <laughs> like it. yeah. I mean, he's not fond of Derek Lambias, and he's not fond of any of them really. But, but he's also, I think he's he, he can reflect on a very happy life overall. You know, he should be very satisfied. If, you know, if he can't be satisfied with how his career's gone, then then who can really? You know, he's. He, um, you just look at his achievements. The biggest problem I had was was getting everything into one book, um, and there were passages where you could easily make a chapter about just something that I'm actually having to squash into one paragraph because, you know, because it's, it's, cause otherwise you're going to have to leave something else out. You know, so you know I, I, he's he's a very happy guy. We went up to Newcastle on this book signing tour, and he really, you know, even though he spoke openly about the Ashley situation, you know, that was an hour and a half after he'd already, you know, talked about the rest of his life and his first time at Newcastle and everything else. So he, he really didn't want it to be a kind of a bitch fest, you know, where he's basically just no. go out there for two hours and um, and come across as bitter because he, he, he's, he's not he's not bitter. Don't get me wrong, he's, he's not a fan of these people in any measure and, you know, he's watching what's happening to Newcastle, you know, with growing despair and would love for it to be different, and um, you know, I'm sure he's he's angry about it and all the rest of it because he cares about Newcastle United. But but you know, the guy is um, very happy. He's got a brilliant family. Um, he can look back on his career, I think, with um, you know great satisfaction. I think that was that was really the driving force for doing a book, really, was to sort of tell, try and tell the whole story. And um, you know, a few people because because all, I understand this because all the publicity surrounding the civilization was about the Mike Ashley. It, it makes it look like the whole book is that is that. Yeah. But but to be fair, it's it's really the, it's two of the last three chapters and the twenty one chapters and you know four hundred odd pages. So you know you look, you look talking about six years at Liverpool with all the trophies. You know, Southampton as a golden boot winner, Hamburg and 
playing for England and you know there's, there's so much more to it but obviously I do get as a, as a newspaper man I do understand why so, especially in the current climate with everything that's happening in Newcastle all the all the, um, the civilisation publicity was about the Ashley um, tragic comedy do you use that word is that? Well I, I, I think it's kind of um, I mean you're absolutely right it's a, it, I mean Ashley did his, his tact on at the end and it, it needed to be involved in it because Obviously, it's a really, really full football life, and I, I, I loved it. So uh, anyone, anyone has read it yet? See, so because I'm not even really a, an autobiography guy, I, I, um, I don't read very many of them, but uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And then, Dan, thanks so much for, for, for joining us. No, it's a pleasure, and thanks. I appreciate that. Nice to hear, because um, obviously, you know, it's probably the best part of two years of two years' work, really. To, so, so it's good to hear that. So I appreciate that. No, it's absolutely great.